Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Katani, and with Ginny Smith. This week we're looking at disgust. Why do we find some things just so gross? And are men more easily disgusted than women? Or is it the other way round? Plus, science headlines from around the world, including a universal flu vaccine, jumping robots, and why the zebra got its stripes. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Worldwide, the flu kills up to half a million people every year. One of the main ways of preventing the disease is vaccination. But because the influenza virus is constantly changing or mutating, vaccine makers are always playing catch-up. Now, scientists may have a new way to fight the flu using a treatment that can prevent infection with any strain of the virus. Jacob Yunt from Ohio State University has discovered how to boost the activity of a substance made naturally by our cells called iFitM3, which has a powerful flu-blocking effect, as he explained to Chris Smith. What we've discovered is a way to enhance a natural antiviral defense mechanism in cells that is active against influenza virus. And this involves a protein called iFitM3, and what IFIT-M3 does is it blocks the ability of influenza to enter cells. And this is really a very ancient or primitive defense mechanism. It's present in some single-celled organisms. And this is completely independent of vaccines or the antibody response that we associate with vaccines. What does that IFIT-M3 protein normally do on the surface of the cell then to block flu and stop it in its tracks? Exactly how IFIT-M3 is able to prevent the virus from fusing with the cell is not entirely clear. But what we do know is that when cells make a lot of IFIT-M3, it becomes very difficult for the virus to infect cells. Well, that begs the obvious question, then why don't cells make lots of it all the time? It's not entirely obvious why they don't make a lot of it, but what we know is that they don't keep it around until there's a virus present. So once there is a virus infection, then the cells, the body starts making a lot of IFIT-M3. And so what that does is it limits the spread of the infection. By literally stopping the flu getting into any new victim cells so it can't increase its numbers any further? Yes, exactly. So we've been looking for at least a few years now for different ways to be able to get cells to express or make a lot of IFIT-M3 from the beginning before a virus infection is present. Right, so the idea would be it's almost like putting the cells into defensive mode so they're already capable of warding off virus before it even arrives and then 
when some virus does come on the scene, it just can't get in. Yes, exactly. So we've known for a long time that if we can get cells to express or make a lot of IFID-M3, they're very resistant to flu infection right from the start. How does one go about doing that then? How can you boost the amount of this IFID-M3 signal? So what we found is that one of the reasons that IFID-M3 levels are so low is that the cells mark IFID-M3 to be degraded. This involves another enzyme called NED4. Now when we deplete cells of NED4, then we see that IFID-M3 is able to accumulate, even in the absence of infection. So it's a bit like the cell adds a best before date, like supermarkets do, to the IFID-M3, and the cell comes along and says, right, your time is up, and hoiks it off. What you're doing is effectively removing the shelf stacker who would normally go around in the supermarket removing the stuff that's over its best before date, so the protein stays there on the cell surface doing its job for longer, so you get a more pronounced effect. That's exactly right. We found a way to extend the half-life of IFID-M3 by eliminating this protein NED4. What would be the implication then, if you're successful and you can make a drug that will do this in a human being, what would be the implication? Why is this an important discovery? So what IFID-M3 does is it really inhibits all strains of the flu that we've ever tested. So in that way, it would be protective against even new and emerging strains of flu. And that means that the eternal search for the next vaccine, which the World Health Organization spends a fortune doing every year and occasionally gets wrong, like it did last year in some respects, that wouldn't matter anymore because we wouldn't need to keep making new flu vaccines. We could just give people this agent that you're going to invent instead. Right. So I think that this would definitely be a complementary strategy to vaccination, especially if there was a new virus that emerges that we haven't yet developed a vaccine for. So it's probably a little bit early for next flu season, so we shouldn't hold our breath there. Uh, but, but there's certainly hope. Will it work against other viruses, or is this an anti-flu effect exclusively? I'm thinking of, have you actually got the cure for the common cold here too? So th- that's actually a really good question. IFID-M3 does inhibit other viruses. It inhibits viruses that enter cells in a similar way to flu. And some of those viruses are things like dengue virus, West Nile virus, and even Ebola virus. Jacob Yunt discussing the discovery he's just published in the journal PLOS Pathogens. Now, thanks to the dexterity of surgeons, it's possible to reattach severed fingers, toes and even limbs. But what's even more amazing is that the peripheral nerve cells or neurons can rewire themselves back into the damaged tissue, bringing back sensation and movement. But how do they do it? UCL's Alison Lloyd has been studying how these neurons, along with special helpers called Schwann cells, manage this impressive feat. Imagine that your nerve is completely severed. The connections to the nerve, if you can think of it like a, um, an electrical cable with lots of, lots of separate, separate wires within it attaching to various points, downstream of that cut, all of the wires will disintegrate. Then what has to happen is those wires or those neurons have to regrow back to their targets and that's the repair process. Now, this is much more tricky than it sounds because it's joined up by this sort of mush of inflammatory cells and matrix which joins together the ends of this severed nerve. Sort of biological, gluey stuff. Exactly. It's very non-directional and it's very dense, full of matrix and, and other cells. And what we've shown previously is that a special cell type 
within the nerve, which are called Schwann cells, they are able to migrate out of the stumps across the bridge and they migrate as cords across the bridge, taking the axons with them. They are then able to grow down back to their targets. So what the mystery was, what we didn't understand, is this is quite a big gap. This is quite a big bridge. There was no directionality to it. And we couldn't understand how these cords knew where to go. What we found was that there was another cell type that was very important in this process. And these are endothelial cells, and these are the cells that make blood vessels. So what was happening first was that this mush had cells in it which were sensing that they weren't getting enough oxygen. What happens in response to loss of oxygen that there are signals that make blood vessels grow. What do your results show might be going on when nerve cells are growing across this gap to repair the damage? What we found is that the Schwann cells are only able to migrate along the surface of another cell type, and in this case it's the blood vessels. So the first thing that happens within this bridge is that there's a lack of oxygen which is sensed by inflammatory cells. They send out a signal which causes the formation of blood vessels. The Schwann cells can't migrate within this matrix. They need the surface of the blood vessels. And the blood vessels grow as tracks. They're polarised in the direction of travel. And the Schwann cells use this to find their way across the bridge. So it's kind of like a train can only run on a track. You know, once it gets going, it's great, but it has to have that track there first. Yeah, so the Schwann cells seem to have this engine. They can make this force for migration, but they need a, a specific track in order to migrate, and that's different to other cells. How can we use this knowledge to, for example, get better at repairing nerves? We have surgeons who tend to sew up the gaps, but even so, for serious injuries, there's often a gap in the nerves, and so people try and make artificial bridges to encourage this nerve regrowth. And that's a big problem area, in that sometimes the gap is is quite big, and then you have these different artificial bridges that people try and use to encourage the neurons to regrow across this bridge area. And so I think what our work suggests is that what you want to do is to mimic the real bridge. So you want to maybe make tubes with blood vessels, either blood vessels themselves or surfaces that mimic what it is about blood vessels that provide a surface for the Schwann cells. But I think it has broader implications for other diseases as well. I mean, the way that certain cancers spread within the body, these cells are moving along the surface of other cells. And it has been observed that cells such as uh, melanomas and gliomas, for example... Those are brain tumours. They're brain tumours, and they're very, very uh, invasive. That's the major problem with them. But they also seem to be migrating along the surface of blood vessels. So it's possible that when these cancer cells are moving and they're moving along blood vessels, they're using the same mechanisms that that you see following an injury, and they're just co-opting this type of behaviour in order to spread. And so, again, if we can understand that better, then possibly we can understand better how tumours spread and, and then maybe do something about it. Alison Lloyd from UCL, and that study came out in the journal Cell this week. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Kat Arney and Ginny Smith. Coming up later, we're going to be talking about disgust. What is it and why do we find things disgusting? Now, cave deposits, known as stalagmites, provide a valuable insight into how climate has changed in the past. Their isotopic composition, essentially variations in their elemental makeup, can inform us that a major climate event took place. However, the effect that climate events had on society is somewhat more difficult to unravel. 
A team of scientists have discovered a unique cave in central China that contains both stalagmites and dated inscriptions describing the effects that severe droughts had on the local population. Joanna Kerr spoke to Sebastian Breitenbach to learn more about reconstructing changes in climate that happened hundreds of years ago. We go into the cave and uh, we try to find stalagmites that are grown very simple. We cut them open and then we can already see these layers brown, white, sometimes they are translucent and sometimes these layers are annual. And um, we can either count these layers to get a chronology or we can take uh, uranium series samples um, and date them precisely. And then we can take a, like a small drill, like a dentist drill. Uh, you can take small samples and measure the isotopes or elemental concentration. How do the isotopes in the stalagmite, how do they actually tell us about the climate? Uh, for example, if you look at the oxygen uh, isotope ratios, they are dependent on the oxygen ratios in the rainfall and in the water that infiltrates into the cave. And they would be more negative when there's a strong monsoon and they would be more positive when there's a, a less strong or weak monsoon. However, this is always ambiguous because there are other, other factors that also influence ox oxygen, like temperature changes. The exceptional thing in, in this cave is that we have these inscriptions and we can compare extreme events for example, with much higher data 18 values, compare them to the inscriptions. And uh, we actually find that the inscriptions that we, that we have, the timing of these inscriptions uh, fits very well with these extreme events. Why were people entering the cave and why do you think that they chose to write about these climate events? They would go to the cave because the cave holds water for longer. Even if you have above the cave already dry conditions, the cave would still have some time when it was dripping. In the cave you have a, a lake, you have a lot of water flowing around. And people went there firstly to collect water. Certainly the, the local farmers knew about this cave for forever already. But then if this is the last wet place in the surrounding, then people would go there and pray. From what we know from these inscriptions is that the governor, for example, came to the place. So we have one inscription, the governor of the Ningyang district came to the cave to pray for rain. And that's inscribed as a graffiti in, in the cave on the wall. In these inscriptions, did the people provide any information about how they reacted to the droughts or how the communities reacted to the droughts? Not in great detail. Um, the inscriptions are quite short. Uh, we know from historic records that these times were associated with civil unrest, even with cannibalism, with people migrating from one place to another in search for water. Do you think that there are any lessons to learn in terms of how the population reacted to these droughts and to climate change and how we may react as a population in the future? So there are two important things that we should bear in mind. Uh, one is that reconstruction that we have from this cave tells us that even relatively short but very intense droughts can have a very severe impact on human and on society in the region. Of course, we cannot directly compare what happened 500 years ago with what's going on right now, because now the civilization is much advanced and it's industrialized. But if you, if you just think about the drought in California, even there, there's now a huge drought and people start moving away and, and uh, digging uh, deeper wells to, to reach the groundwater. So the society at large is still vulnerable to such events.
The other thing uh, that is important to, to keep in mind is that when we compare the geochemical evidence with model output, then we see an increasing um, likelihood of drought events and more frequent extreme events, meaning we might get more flood events during the monsoon and we can also think of a longer dry period. So each each winter might be, or dry season might be longer than before. And that would be disastrous for the farmers. Sebastian Breitenbach discussing his study, which was published in Scientific Reports. Scientists have developed a tiny robot that can jump on water, based on the pond skater or water strider insect. Four thin wire legs extend from a V-shaped central body of the robot and allow it to sit on the water's surface. Across the top of the V is a spring system. It works like a catapult, releasing energy to bend the V-shape and push the legs down against the water, propelling the robot off the surface exactly like the real insect does it. Science reporter Victoria Gill talked Chris Smith through the story. This is a new robot which jumps on water. This is uh, researchers from Seoul National University in South Korea and they have taken water striders, literally collected them from a local pond and they've been studying them with high-speed cameras and looking at the mechanism by which they jump because water striders are unique in that they can jump from the surface of water without breaking that water surface. So these researchers wanted to find out how and then create a robot that copied that mechanism and that's what they've done. Well, before we come on to how they actually do it, why is this important? Why do we need to know how they do this? There's a lot of interest in getting robotics into situations where we wouldn't be able to get ourselves, whether that's miniaturisation or whether that's moving through and across surfaces and dangerous places that we wouldn't be able to access. Um, Obviously, there's military applications for that, but these researchers really wanted to drill down into how this biology works so they could apply it to biorobotics. They suggest that there might be um, surveillance for environmental purposes if you're looking at working in watery surfaces. And there's also um, search and rescue applications. So what did the videos reveal? How do these insects do this? What they were looking at is um, water striders' skinny little legs and how they make contact with the water, but then how they move their legs as they as they press down with a, a downward force and then you get an opposite upward force pushing them off the surface of the water. While most jumping insects apply a high force very quickly, the maximum force is that initial push-off off the ground If you do that on water, you break the surface tension of the water. So you can't truly jump off the surface. And you would sink, of course. And you would sink, exactly. And and there are some jumping insects that sort of compromise their jumping abilities when they're in water by utilising the, the viscosity of water and having very, very light bodies and being structured in a particular way so that they can utilise that and still get some sort of jump. But water striders can jump just as well off the surface of water as they can on land. And that's all about how they jump. So the, the crucial thing is to apply a force gradually that never exceeds the force that's holding those water molecules together so it never exceeds the, the the surface tension of the water and that's what they've that's what they saw in the water strider and what they've been able to copy so it's a jumping mechanism that gradually applies a force and the force never exceeds the surface tension of the water so now we know what we've got to achieve with a robot but looking at the insect for a minute do they have any idea how they achieve that graded force like that so they don't penetrate the surface of the water 
essentially what they use is is called a torque reversal catapult. That's the mechanism. Now, this is essentially a spring. And this was first seen in um, flea legs, fleas being these in- incredible jumpers that actually uh, biologists and, and bioroboticists are really interested in their incredible abilities to, to jump so high and so fast. And what they do is ratchet up kinetic energy stored in a spring. And that's sort of torque moving in one direction. And you can imagine the torque you can imagine that spring then moving through rotating around that joint and then suddenly all the torque is moving in the other direction so that's that's a, a sort of innate inbuilt catapult that stores up kinetic energy and then releases it very very quickly but they tune that catapult in order to release that energy gradually and to never exceed the force of the surface tension of the water does this mean then that uh, we can do this but we can only do it with very very tiny robots or will it scale up to bigger things I asked that actually, and at the moment, um, it's it's purely miniaturization, and this has actually been um, it's been an, a long process to build something that would be the right weight, would have the right material. They have had to use a very very hydrophobic or water repelling material to be able to create these little skinny legs that don't break the water surface. So there's been a lot of, of fine tuned mechanics to create a light bodied skinny legged insect robot. So at the moment, this this couldn't be scaled up the dynamics just wouldn't work in the same way. Victoria Gill reporting on that study, which was published in the journal Science. While many other animals use camouflage to try and blend into their environment in their quest for survival, others employ a very different technique. Zebras are the primary example of animals using so-called dazzle patterns to try to confuse their predators, the same idea that was behind the dazzle ships of World War I. However, a hundred years after those boats were designed, new research has called into question just how effective their patterns really are. James Farr spoke to Anna Hughes from the University of Cambridge to find out more. We've just come into the University of Cambridge's Fitzwilliam Museum and we're being led through a sort of series of galleries, um, all with lots of old-looking pieces of art and sculptures on the walls. We've arrived at a study room in which we're going to view some special drawings, I believe. We're here to see a couple of drawings by an artist called Norman Wilkinson, who was famous for drawing the dazzle ships that were used in the First World War. And they've got really strong black and white striking stripes, which look very much like zebras, really. Yeah, (laughs) so it was actually inspired by the natural world. It's been thought for a long time that the stripes on animals like zebras might act to confuse a viewer. It might make it hard to judge the speed or direction of them when they're moving. And this is why these warships are painted in this way. But it was not really ever tested at the time whether it worked. And so recent researchers ask the question, does it? Is that why zebras have stripes? That's the idea of this hypothesis, which is often called sort of motion dazzle hypothesis, that the stripes are an anti-predator defence. It's a very different style of camouflage to what people might think of as a traditional style, more like, I don't know, something that tries to blend in. So. I think the key thing here that's different is if you're not moving it, and you match your background perfectly, it is in fact very difficult to see you. But as soon as you start moving, it's much easier to see anything, even if it's well matched to its background, because it, it just sort of pops out from the background. So it's interesting to know whether 
There are types of patterns that might not make it difficult to detect something when it's moving, but that make it difficult to aim at. And your new paper sets out to test this idea and assess whether it really does work. Yeah, we have been looking at whether this could be a plausible explanation for the evolution of zebra stripes and possibly stripes in other animals as well. So we conducted a study um, using humans as sort of model predators. uh, And what they have to do is they play a little game, basically a touchscreen game where they have to try and catch the moving targets. And we tested different types of targets with different types of patterns. And we were asking, do stripes of the sort that you might see in a zebra offer any benefit over a uniform grey that in our experiment was very well traditionally camouflaged against the background. And we found that when the targets were presented on their own, so that participants just tried to catch one target at a time, the stripe targets and the grey targets were pretty similar. But when we um, looked at increasing the number of targets that were present at any one time, surprisingly, we actually found that the stripes were actually easier to catch than the camouflage grey. So it didn't seem to be that the stripes provided extra protection when there were more targets present. So in actual fact, the stripes made it easier in some sense for the predators, actual humans playing the game, to spot the targets. Yeah, this is kind of quite surprising. I mean, it is always worth remembering with this sort of study, it is an artificial setup in a lot of ways. Humans are not the natural predators of zebra, and lions and other predators do have different visual systems. So it could be that this is, you know, partly an artefact of the way that we set up the game. And it's also the case that we used quite a simple model of how the targets moved. So they weren't particularly moving in a herd, but were moving kind of individually. And it would be really cool, I think, to test more thoroughly what it would be like if you actually tried to get the targets to move with relation to each other, because there you might see stronger effects. Are there any other areas you'd like to go down in the future to extend this research? So I think... One of the cool things about this topic is that it's probably quite likely that there are multiple functions to the zebra stripes. Uh, And there's been a few recent papers that have suggested alternative hypotheses. So, for example, there's been some suggestions recently that the stripes might not actually be deterring mammalian predators, but are in fact maybe deterring flies, so biting flies that kind of irritate the zebra and maybe transmit things like malaria. So there may well be tests that can be done using flies to see if they're repulsed by stripes and whether that acts possibly in a sort of motion dazzle manner, making it difficult for them to land accurately or something like that. There's various hypotheses, and I think it's probably not necessarily just one explanation, but maybe several different things that have come together to create really quite unique patterning in this animal. That was Anna Hughes from the University of Cambridge, whose paper was published in the journal Frontiers in Zoology this week. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Kat Arney and Ginny Smith. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, or find us on Facebook. Now it's time to move on to our main theme for this week, disgust. We've all experienced it, whether it was from treading on a slug in the dark or realising you've just bitten into an apple crawling with worms. That creeping feeling of your skin, the rising nausea and the desire to distance yourself from whatever it is you've just seen or felt is really familiar. You may even be experiencing it now from my descriptions. I I know I am. (laughs) 
Now, we've been asking what you find disgusting. And our listener, Bill, got in touch to tell us that he finds rice pudding disgusting. And I must say, I, I kind of agree there. It's that kind of slimy texture yeah, that I think a lot of people... Yeah, slimy things. Mm, uncooked egg whites, like, yeah, mm, no, yeah, not good. That seems to be something that a lot of people find disgusting. But why is that? I wanted to know what exactly disgust is. So I asked Professor Paul Rosin, who was one of the first researchers to begin working on disgust. Disgust is a a basic emotion, but it actually means two things in English. Uh, One is what the psychologist means, a particular type of negative emotion. But it's also used in English to mean bad. So you might say anything is disgusting when you want to say it's bad. And that produces a problem because when we ask people about disgust, there are both of these usages. Now, we have a word in English, gross, which is actually means more like what psychologists mean by disgust. What kinds of things evoke that feeling of disgust or grossness? The uh, basic idea is that things that are offensive, but in a particular kind of way, the most clear-cut forms of disgust are to rotting things like animal flesh or certain kinds of dirty animals like rats or dead bodies, but they're all very bodily. And some people think that the basic core of that is a system to keep us from acquiring pathogens, which are usually carried in animals and more so in decaying animals. But it's extended way beyond that in the way culture uses the term. So let's go back a step. When we first evolved disgust, where do you think that came from? Well, it's pretty clear what the system that it originated from is, and that's the bitter taste system, which is in rats and primates. It's it's the negative response to bitter taste. And the face that infants make to that, which is an innate rejection, is very similar to the disgust face. So it looks like that system was co-opted, or the term I use is pre-adapted, used for another purpose in the course of evolution. The system was already in place. It was a food rejection system, but now a whole new class of things, that system became used for those. And actually, bitter tastes are no longer disgusting. People don't use the term, and they don't feel nausea, which is the sign of disgust. So the system was pre-adapted and co-opted from the bitter system, but it's now independent of it. So that disgust face you mentioned, that's the kind of wrinkled nose, the gaping mouth, maybe even sticking your tongue out, that if you think of something disgusting, you'll probably start doing. There are a number of faces, but they all have to do with rejection of stuff from the mouth and not smelling it. It's the raised upper lip is the most important piece of it, but it also includes the wrinkling of the nose and the gape. So that system is used in response to all sorts of things which are primarily animal things that we reject. And then through the same process of co-optation or pre-adaptation, it becomes used for other things that are offensive but not having to do with the body. For example, strangers, people you don't like, negative figures, like Hitler, and also for all sorts of sexual things like incest. Now, that's really interesting that it could have gone from being something that's physically to protect you against poisons or pathogens to it's still protective in a way, but in a more kind of indirect way. Is that quite unusual? It's not unusual. It's a very common process. 
in both biological and cultural evolution that something that evolved for one purpose is used for another. For example, your mouth evolved to eat and breathe, but it's used for language. So the language system co-opted the mouth. You need your teeth and your tongue to speak, but they didn't evolve for that purpose. So we are constantly reusing things, and this is just one example. So the, the big issue now is how do you link the presumed pathogen origin of disgust, which may have been biologically or culturally evolved, we don't know, but how do we get from that to other negative things? So one is to talk about the fact that sexual activity also is a potential way of passing pathogens, like sexually transmitted disease. That's one view. My own view with my colleagues Macaulay and Haidt, is that that's not really what happened, that the culture discovered that if they could make something disgusting, people wouldn't do it. So they have this disgust system, and they just apply it to other things, like incest or evil people, which are not related to pathogens at all. They all have the property that we want to get rid of them, we won't want to deal with them. Now, you've spent a lot of time studying disgust in the lab. What do you do to people to make them disgusted? What kind of experiments have you done? Well, first, let me just say disgust is extremely easy to elicit in people in a laboratory setting, much more so than anger or sadness. But disgust is easy. All we have to do is take out a disgusting object. So, and we even have, can take out an image of a disgusting object. Even just talking about something disgusting, I know when I've been planning this show, there have been a few moments I've been talking to people and got that horrible cringing feeling just from talking about something. It's amazingly easy. The most indirect thing is that something looks disgusting, but really isn't. People still show the response. So we did this in the lab by presenting college students with a, a piece of chocolate shaped to look like a dog do. And they knew it was chocolate, and there was a piece of the chocolate it was made from right there. And most people didn't want to eat it, even though they knew it was chocolate, because it looked like dog. So there's a powerful sense of disgust that way. You've done other studies where you've looked at how disgust can get passed on from a disgusting object to another object as well, haven't you? We give them a glass of juice that, that they know is good juice. We pour it out for them from the container, and they drink it. And then we drop a cockroach in it, it's a dead cockroach, and take it out. So there's no sign of the cockroach. And they won't touch that juice, they hate it. So it's so powerful that when it touches something, it renders it inedible. Now, if we ask people, why didn't you drink the juice? They'll say, because cockroaches are disease vectors. You never know what's in there. You can get something. So we say, okay, we'll do it again with a sterilized cockroach. This is a cockroach that is safer than your fork. And we drop that and take it out, and they won't drink it. Because as it plays out now, though it may have originated as pathogen, it's the whole idea that cockroachness has entered the juice. When a cockroach touches your juice, its essence passes into the juice. And it doesn't matter whether it's carrying microorganisms or not. Hitler's sweater, which is a thing that we don't own, but we use it in describing it, is something that people are really offended by. They won't wear Hitler's sweater, even if you wash it and do everything you can to it. And it, it isn't a pathogen threat. It's a moral threat. So that's how disgust has expanded from being just about potential bad consequences of eating to being it's a sign of immorality, and it's a way of labeling them and getting other people to avoid them. 
That was Professor Paul Rosin from the University of Pennsylvania. Now, Kat, I've got a little experiment to try out on you to see how easily you're disgusted. Okay. And our intern James and our guest Alison, who are also here in the studio, are going to join us for this. Does anyone like chocolate spread? Kind of, yeah. Mm. I've got a a well-known brand of hazelnut and chocolate spread. Very delicious. So who would like some chocolate spread? I've got some spoons here. Anyone like to try some? Yeah. Happy. Sounds good. Okay. Now, I'm not going to hand you the pot because, I mean, you can't eat straight out of the pot. That's just, that's not Um. allowed. So (laughs) all you have to do in order to eat some of this delicious chocolate spread is eat it out of the thing that I am currently passing to you. So do you want to just tell everyone Uh, what you've got there? Okay, so what I've just been handed is a disposable nappy that's full of Nutella. Now, I'm I'm not a mum. Thanks for the spoon, Jenny. I'm not a mum, but I am a very proud auntie. And I have seen nappies with this kind of content. And this is just... <laughs> I mean, this is revolting. It's chocolate spread. You know it's chocolate spread. Um, you can probably even smell that it's chocolate spread. But <laughs> it kind of, like, it smells kind of poopy. Is anyone willing to try it? What about you two? Yeah. yeah. Oh. This is a completely clean it's, nappy. I promise it was a clean nappy. I bought them today. But it looks pretty disgusting, isn't it? Oh, Alison, you're trying it. How does it taste? It tastes like chocolate spread. But did you feel anything when you were sort of digging in with the spoon? Or I can't did, do was it. it okay? I think it was fine. Like it, a nappy is something that would have to be quite clean to be go onto a, a baby. So I kind of trust the manufacturer to keep it clean, and trust you to have not played any nasty tricks on us. <laughs> and James, how about you? It tastes fine, but it, it definitely still feels slightly strange. I'm slightly not regretting it, but but definitely wouldn't wouldn't do it normally. Um, I actually feel physically sick. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Sorry. So that's really interesting. We have one who found it absolutely fine, one who sort of managed it, but it felt a bit weird, and Kat, who just flat out refused to even try it. I can't. I, you know, I can clean up people's puke. That's absolutely fine. Poo, mm, I, I can't deal with it. Um, but anyway, as we've just shown in our very unscientific experiment, some of us are far more disgustable than others. But why is that? Uh, Dr. Alex Skolnick is from St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, and he works on just that question. There are lots of individual differences. I mean, as you might experience in life where somebody is really disgusted by a cockroach walking by and other people can just pick it up. Uh, so there's definitely individual differences uh, and that will run the whole gamut across uh, gender and age. We do tend to find, see that uh, if you give a survey and you ask uh, men and women questions about what's disgusting, that women tend to score higher on a tendency to be disgusted by by objects compared to men. So women are basically more easily grossed out by stuff? Yes, and, and it is about being grossed out. You can look at disgust in several ways. There's sort of what we call core disgust, which is really the, the gross-out kind of disgust, you know, stepping out a caterpillar or something like that. There's also other types. There's interpersonal disgust, where you're disgusted by someone's behavior. You don't like how someone behaved towards somebody else. And there's also moral disgust, where disgust might actually inform how we make moral decisions. And it does seem that the strongest gender differences are in the gross-out kind of disgust. There are smaller differences in interpersonal and very small or no differences when you talk about moral disgust. The disgust feelings that someone might express are going to be pretty similar between men and women, but when you're talking about stepping in in dog poop or a friend vomiting or something really awful like that, men tend to be on uh, less less disgusted or admit less disgust. Why do you think that might be? 
you can try to explain uh, why women maybe are higher in disgust than men evolutionarily, because you could think that uh, women might be able to protect their pregnancies, let's say, by if disgust is sort of protective, has a sort of protective function because we are often disgusted by things that could be dangerous or things that we eat might be toxic, that are taste bitter, or uh, certain insects might be dangerous or snakes. A snake is a common disgust uh, object. You might think that if you're high in disgust, you will be a little bit safer from these things that might be threatening. And so one idea is that women are higher because they're protecting their pregnancies and protecting their children from potential threats. And disgust might be that feeling that can warn you away from those things. Or is it just that guys aren't letting on that they find something horrible, that they want to pretend to be, yeah, tough, oh, no, that wasn't disgusting at all, that's fine? Some of the differences between men and women can be attributed to more of a, a cultural bias or even a, a masculinity bias, where men do want to put themselves out there as being masculine. And emotions like fear and disgust and maybe expressing pain, these are things that might make somebody seem less masculine. I don't always think that they're suppressing these thoughts consciously. So I think sometimes it's very, it's a very quick and unconscious suppression. But I think they're just sort of in the habit of doing that. And are there cultural differences when you look across countries? Most of this research has been done in the United States or in the United Kingdom or in Germany, several places in Europe uh, or Australia. And when you do it in these places, you tend to find the standard pattern that women tend to be more easily disgusted. We studied disgust in Ghana, and we found that, one, that Ghanaian students show actually a much higher level of disgust. They're much more easily disgusted than the comparison with students at my university. We also found that there really were very few gender differences between men and women in their disgust. And we had four different measures, and across all four, there were no differences. So what do you think that tells us about why different people feel different levels of disgust? I think the cultural differences could lead us in a couple of ways to think about this. One is that what you see is actually when you look at disgust in the women in Ghana versus the women in the United States, they were a little bit higher in Ghana, but they were pretty similar, but it was the men that were really different. So men report very low disgust here, but in Ghana, the men were basically, have you know, show the same higher level of disgust with the women. So they seem to want be the ones who, are, who have changed uh, compared to the United States. And there was another study that compared disgust in Slovakia compared to Turkey. And in Turkey, they found the same thing where Turkish subjects showed more disgust than the Slovakian subjects, but they also showed no gender differences. So again, it seems like the women were pretty similar, but the men are the ones who are changing and increasing their disgust in, in these certain cultures. What do these kind of studies reveal about us, reveal about ourselves? I think that by understanding our emotions and all aspects of our emotions, which is really a very strong trend today in research because emotions are they're really a strong part of who we are uh, and how we manage the world and how we regulate and emotions uh, can lead us astray and cause problems for us in terms of mental illness and things like that. So I think it's really important to understand all the facets of emotion and disgust actually plays some role in phobias. Uh, there's some evidence that maybe disgust plays a role in PTSD, some other types of mental illness. So it could be that, you know, understanding all the facets, how, how do these differences manifest themselves across age, which is very interesting, across gender, uh, would help us really understand how these, these emotions work in the mind in the first place. That was health and emotion psychologist Dr. Alex Skolnick. 
You are listening to The Naked Scientist with Ginny Smith and me, Katani. Still to come, can harnessing the power of disgust change people's behaviour for the better? But first, as well as body fluids and rotting meat, there are other things people commonly describe as disgusting, and many of them are sexual behaviours. But how do we decide what to find disgusting and what's acceptable? Well, Professor Robin McKenzie works on neuroscience, medical law and ethics at the University of Kent, and she joins us now. What exactly is going on in the brain when we find something disgusting, when we have that reaction like Kat just had to the um, nappy full of chocolate spread? Well, to start with, the reaction begins in the stomach and the actual body as opposed to the brain. So you get a feeling of discomfort in your stomach, you get tense facial skin and you get cardiovascular changes. Your heartbeat goes either up or down. Those sensations get translated by the insula in the brain to other areas of the brain that are involved with an emotional aspect to the reaction and a cognitive reaction. In the, in the prefrontal cortex, we will make decisions about how to deal with the emotions and how to deal with the bodily sensations by interpreting all the information from the different parts of the body. Why are things like sex-related behaviours so strongly linked to disgust? One of the current theories which I'm adhering to is that we were evolved to find the best possible reproductive partners that we could. And what this meant was that we would be, in some sense, evolutionary programmed to look out for people who seem to be healthy, who seem to be likely to be able to produce healthy children with us. So someone who was ill, someone who was too young or too old, or in other ways unsuitable, would arouse disgust to prevent us considering having sex with them, as in someone in the same kin group as us, who was too close to have healthy children with. So the idea of incest makes you feel disgusted and that's to make sure that you have healthy babies because, of course, if you have a baby with someone closely related to you, they can have genetic defects. Absolutely. But, of course, things have changed a lot since the time we evolved in. So how does that kind of evolutionary disgust apply in modern society? Well, I think this is really interesting because from what Paul was saying, what happens with culture is that there's a lot of repurposing of primarily evolved mechanisms. For instance, if we look at reading, reading takes advantage of things in the brain that were set up for facial recognition and object recognition, and those are put together to enable us to read, and that's a form of cultural evolution. If we're looking at cultural evolution in terms of sex, then With the Judeo-Christian heritage, a lot of the law and a lot of the moral ideas of what was right and wrong were oriented around ensuring that reproduction took place as a result of sexual activity. So things like adultery, incest, sex with animals were all seen as very much the wrong thing. Equally, having sex with someone who was menstruating was seen as a very wrong thing. Well... Homosexuality and many of the kind of things that were seen as a very bad thing to do and disgusting are now increasingly seen as acceptable as our societies become more secular. So this is a form of cultural evolution. Now, you work in law. What does disgust have to do with the laws that make our country 
safe. If you look at primate societies, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that if punishment doesn't happen to ensure that conduct is appropriate in a society, then it's less likely to succeed. And this gets harnessed in a form of moral disgust in our society where people think that someone who's misbehaved in a particular way or has behaved in a particular way that they conceive of as misbehaving should be punished. And you can see this in terms of various sexual behaviours like paedophilia, for instance, is seen as very wrong. Coercive sex and rape is seen as very wrong. How this impacts on our legal system is what's prohibited and also in terms of the sentencing and punishment. And disgust comes in terms of what make the laws in that area and also what the degree of punishment that's likely to be imposed in the sentencing has been shown to be influenced by individuals' differences in terms of how much disgust they feel. And of course, as we just showed, that can vary hugely. Fascinating. Thank you so much, Professor Robin McKenzie. As we've seen, some people's attitudes to what they find disgusting can change over time. And this is something researchers are trying to harness to make the world a better place. Shockingly, there are billions of people around the world without access to adequate sanitation. In fact, more people have access to a mobile phone than to a proper toilet. Alison Parker is a lecturer in international water and sanitation at Cranfield University, and she's working to tackle this problem. Hi, Alison. Hello. As we've uh, seen with our little test with the nappy and the chocolate spread, which I completely failed at, we have quite a strong disgust reaction to toilet waste, to to poo and to wee, and and particularly poo. What are our attitudes like here in the Western world? I think uh, we have a natural disgust reaction to poo because it does smell pretty bad. Uh, We're also uh, taught that by our, our mothers when we're little about washing our hands when we've used the toilet. We're taught to to leave the toilet in a state that someone else might want to use it afterwards. Ideally, yes, always. (laughs) Uh, And what about other parts of the world? We heard Alex talking about cultural differences in in levels of disgust. Does that same attitude persist uh, all over the world, particularly in places maybe where they don't have such easy access to to flush toilets and things like that? I think it does. We're all naturally disgusted by faeces. But what can change is people don't understand how their faeces might end up in their drinking water. So I had a a student travel recently to India and she found that people there didn't understand that even if water looked clean, it might not be safe to drink because it might have things in it that were too small to see but would actually make them ill. And also, I guess, in many parts of the world where they don't have access to kind of nice toilets or kind of toilet you'd want to use, people are just just doing their business anywhere, I guess. Yes, open defecation can be quite a challenge. People go out maybe at night uh, under the cover of darkness because they don't have anywhere to go to the toilet. And this is particularly risky for women who going out at night face risks from rape, uh, as well as things like snake bites as well. So when it comes to uh, trying to sort out these problems, tell me about some of the ways that you and your team are trying to address the problem of people not having access to decent toilets, because we're very lucky here in the West. We have lots of fresh water to flush our toilets with, lots of toilets, toilet in every home. Uh, What are you working on? So we're working on a number of different technologies that will help people have access to toilets when they don't have 
running water, a sewer, maybe even access to power as well. So one of the projects we're working on is called a nanomembrane toilet. And this is a toilet that will work in those situations, working completely off grid to give people somewhere safe to go to the toilet. How does it work? A nanomembrane toilet sounds very technologically sophisticated. Talk me through it. The first stage of the nanomembrane toilet is the uh, waterless flush. So it's uh, a rotating bowl with a scraper that uh, scrapes the waste into a holding chamber below. So instead of it just being flushed away, like it's still vanishing out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. Yeah, it's really important in our studies with the users that they can't see or smell the waste after they've produced it. So that's a very important part of the system. And then what happens to it? It's gone into this holding chamber. What next? The next stage is the membrane stage. So uh, in the holding chamber are membranes. Membranes are like sieves. They've got really small holes in them. In fact, these holes are so small that only water molecules can pass through. Actually, water is the smallest component of human waste. OK, let me get this straight. You are sieving the water out of human wee and poo. And what quality is the water that comes out? It's actually very, very good. It would be good enough to drink. Right. So I failed the kind of the nappy chocolate spread test. If you gave me a glass of water and said, OK, this has been filtered out of poo, I think I would struggle to drink that. How, how is this kind of technology going down with people? In our initial studies in Ghana, uh, we found that actually people were prepared to drink it, which surprised us as well. But actually, there are plenty of things that we need water for in the home that isn't drinking, for watering plants, for washing, lots of things that don't involve us actually consuming it. And those are needs as well. So the water can be used for that. And what parts of the world could this kind of technology be, be used for? Anywhere where there isn't a good sewerage network, which in many cities in, uh, in Africa and Asia, 80% of the city cannot have access to a sewer. And in rural areas, that percentage is even higher. I mean, what about here, say, in the West as well? Because I find it crazy. I think it's something like 50 litres of fresh drinking water per person per day in the UK is just used to, to flush our waste away because we find it so disgusting. We're prepared to use drinking water. Could this kind of technology, do you think, be adopted here in the UK too? I mean, water is a very important resource. Certainly, we've had a lot of interest from people who have caravans and boats or just live in remote areas where they don't have sewers. And I think it's an interesting example where something that a technology has been developed for use in low-income countries could actually end up being transferred back to higher-income countries, particularly as water stress increases. For so long, we've had this taboo about poo. You know, it is disgusting. No one wants to think about toilets maybe no one really wants to work on toilets how exciting is it now that there suddenly seems to be interest in finding new toilet solutions I think it's really exciting because the disease burden from poor sanitation is just huge yet no politician wants to be stood next to a toilet having their photo taken showing that this is what they've invested in but actually there is a growing interest in sanitation, a growing number of people working to develop new toilets. Thanks a lot to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation who have funded a huge programme in this area. So we need toilets for the 21st century, not for the 5th century. Absolutely. Just finally, what is the most disgusting toilet that you've ever had to use on your travels? Probably some of the worst ones I've seen are the public toilets in Ghana. Some people there believe that they will get ill from squatting over over the normal squat hole where people are meant to squat. So they do their business next to the toilet and then just leave it like that for the next user. So if you are that next user, it's pretty disgusting. 
That sounds absolutely revolting. Thanks very much for joining us. That's Alison Parker from Cranfield University. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. And finally, in this week's Question of the Week, we're taking a look into space to figure out where we actually are. Where are we within the universe? I would be lying if I said that this question hadn't crossed my mind more than once on a clear summer's evening, while I was gazing at the stars glinting in the distance. So I wanted to see what you thought. And Jeremy Baker on Facebook thinks that we're at the centre of what we can see, like an ant on a ball who's at the centre of everything that he sees, which is bound by his horizon. And Tony Spencer asked, since it all seems to be a bit limitless, who can tell? Well, let's see if Dr Sean McGee from the University of Birmingham can help us out. Since the time of Newton, most cosmologists have assumed that the universe looks the same for all observers when viewed on a sufficiently large scale. This is the so-called cosmological principle, and unfortunately, in this situation, the question of where we are within the universe cannot have a reasonable answer, since there's no unique features from which we can measure our position. Okay, but this is only a theory, right? Well, yes it is, but thankfully this is changing. Using observations of the radiation left over from the Big Bang, cosmologists have now shown that roughly 400,000 years after the Big Bang, the observable universe on the largest scales was uniform, essentially confirming the previously theoretical cosmological principle. On these largest scales, the only answer to where we are in the universe can be that we are somewhere within a vast uniform distribution of matter and galaxies. But it doesn't look very uniform to me. When I look at the stars, I can see all sorts of constellations, and they're all different. Yes, uh, that's right. On small scales, the universe is clearly not uniform. I mean, we see galaxies and stars, tables and chairs, and cats and dogs. And it's on these smaller scales where we can talk about where we live. Now this sounds a bit more promising. So, what are the coordinates? Well, it's not quite that simple. We live on a planet that's orbiting a relatively typical star, the Sun. And this star is orbiting within a relatively typical galaxy, the Milky Way. The Milky Way is in the local group, which is a system which is about 10 million light years across and hosts more than 50 galaxies. This local group is likely to eventually merge with the Virgo galaxy cluster, a vast collection of thousands of galaxies. And as the universe continues to evolve, we may be drawn into an even larger supercluster, Ultimately, while on the small scales, there's lots that makes our particular environment unique, on the largest scales, we can't distinguish our location from any other. So there are some solid answers, but I think that Jeremy Baker on Facebook is right, and we are a little bit like those ants after all. Next week, we'll be answering Dave's question, so make sure that you tune in. Why does a minor key sound mournful and a major key happy? If you think you know the answer, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join in the debate on the forum. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. Now, we have been wanting to know what your disgusting habits are or your partner. So, Ginny, it's time to confess. What is your most revolting habit? 
probably leaving hair in the shower. I have quite long, thick, curly hair. So when I wash it, quite a lot comes out. And I have a tendency to sort of roll it into balls and put it on the side of the bath, meaning to throw it away later and then forget about it. That is gross. I, I will confess, I chew my fingers and my hands. I've just chewed one till it's bleeding. Now I've got blood on my sweater. Oh. Yeah, I know. It's not very attractive. Uh, anyway, that is it for this week. I would like to thank my co-host and producer this week, Ginny Smith. I guess Alison Parker, Robin McKenzie, Paul Rosen and Alex Skolnick. We would love to hear from you on Twitter about your disgusting habits or please do shop your partner. Uh, tweet at Naked Scientist or email chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the SDFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Katani. Thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>